The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus said to the crowds, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. But I told you that, although you have seen me, you do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will not reject anyone who comes to me. Because I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should not lose anything of what he gave me, but that I should raise it on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I shall raise him on the last day. The Gospel of the Lord. We see in our first reading today notice of a sudden eruption of violence which follows swiftly on the wake of a previous act of violence, the martyrdom of St. Stephen the deacon who was stoned to death by a mob in Jerusalem. And we saw that Stephen was given his apostolate, his role in the church, as a result, last week we saw, of the growing pains of the church. And how as the church grew and expanded beyond its initial Jewish core of believers, there was the issue of how do we care for this influx of others now into the community. And from the ranks of those who were Greek-speaking, others were chosen, Stephen being one. And they were ordained, commissioned as deacons, and given a certain authority. And Stephen went out to preach. He debated with the Jews of Jerusalem. His arguments were convincing, compelling, threatening, and he was stoned to death. There is a certain tolerance for mob violence, it seems, in Israel under Roman rule. On the one hand, the Pharisees say, we, or the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin says, we don't have the authority to put anyone to death in the case of Jesus. And yet on the other hand, we see people getting stoned all the time. It is a remarkable combination of lawfulness and lawlessness of mob violence and a violence of the mob that is encouraged by those in power, which is something that runs through human history. And we will be revisiting this tension between the violence of the mob and the order of the state as we read more fully from the Acts of the Apostles, especially with regard to how those two dynamics play out in the life of the great apostle, St. Paul, who we see in the reading today, under the name of Saul, is acting as an agent of 
a certain law, going into believers' homes, dragging them out, and placing them under arrest. It is an odd legal system, an odd situation in Jerusalem, where on the, on the one hand, there is a certain legal authority to persecute, and yet there are some curious limits on that authority. Stephen being martyred seems to be the spur which ignites the furor of those who are opposed to the gospel and the church, and a persecution comes down. And we hear then that this persecution becomes the occasion of many of the believers leaving Jerusalem and taking the gospel elsewhere. This is often the case when the church is persecuted. The attempt to stomp out the gospel produces the spreading of the gospel. Believers move from Jerusalem, but they don't stay silent. And they begin to share the faith, proclaim the faith, witness to the faith, and that witness has a certain compelling and at times even threatening character to establish authority elsewhere, just as it does in Jerusalem. And that is what we see here. There's now a license. The great spokesperson was shut down. A persecution erupts in the area. And we hear something odd. We hear that pretty much the community is dispersed away from Jerusalem with the exception of the apostles, which leaves us with a historic curiosity. If the apostles did not leave Jerusalem, who's this Philip that we're hearing about today in our first reading? Who, outside of Jerusalem, is preaching with such remarkable fervor and effectiveness? And there's no clear answer to that question, but one of the traditions of the church says that he is Philip the deacon, one of the seven whose names were mentioned in our first reading last Saturday. Stephen and six others, including a man named Philip, were commissioned. And so there is a real possibility that this, is, this may be Philip the Apostle, but just in terms of the witness of the text, which says the apostles didn't leave Jerusalem, it may well be that this is Philip the deacon. And note how wonderful that is. His brother deacon. Stephen is the first to shed his blood as a witness to the resurrection. And out of the blood of the martyrs, as we hear, there's the seed of faith begins to grow. Philip, sent out of Jerusalem by means of that selfsame eruption of violence and hostility, goes into Samaria, announces the gospel, and has as his brother Stephen did, remarkable success. The sick are cured, demons are expelled, the truth is proclaimed, and in this outlying area, the faith begins to put roots that become very, very deep. But note the effect that we see. The attempt is to suppress the gospel. The attempt is to threaten the believer. 
the attempt is to make life difficult. And note, the reaction of the church is not to fight back. They don't take up weapons. They don't physically defend themselves. They don't stage counter-protests and counter-riots. They see that something else is happening in this worldly violence and that this is an opportunity to move and to bring the faith someplace else. Spurred by the hostility of the world, the faith goes someplace else. It never leaves Jerusalem. Its roots there have been too deep. But it moves and it grows. This is a, an important example for those of us who live in our modern age where we live in a world of such renewed hostility to the gospel, where all too often we believers are not the equals of our ancestors. We see here that at times the angry defense of Christianity, the violent militants which we can have with regard to defending and upholding and living our faith is not really the answer. This is not to say that the church is to always be passive, but it is to say that the witness of the early church in the face of these persecutions is compelling and instructive. That one does not respond to the violent anger and the hostility of the world with an equal violence and an equal hostility because that's not the mission. The mission is the proclamation of the gospel. And how beautiful that the church never lays aside its mission here. The mission is not, I have to save myself. The mission is not, let's go hide and we'll wait till it cools off. The mission is the gospel must be spread. And if we can't do it here, oh, we'll do it someplace. You know, and. It's no accident that this picture that we see now, looking in anticipation as we come to the very end of the Easter season, we will end our consideration of the Acts of the Apostles with St. Paul under arrest in Rome and preaching from prison. Because the body may be imprisoned by the hostility of the world, but the truth will go out to all the ends of the earth. And we see this now in miniature, even as the believers are being arrested, even as violence rears its head against them, the proclamation continues. It doesn't stop, it simply shifts gears. Beautiful, beautiful witness this is. Note how, note the compelling character of this faith. This is too important not to share, too important for the world not to hear and we are being oppressed so violently because it's important. Because if this wasn't important, no one would care enough to attack us. And so the church took the attack as a confirmation. We're on the right track. And away we go. That being said, then, this scene of the violence erupting against the church in Jerusalem is a helpful parallel to what we are encountering in our gospel reading from chapter 6 of St. John's Gospel, that magnificent passage known as the Bread of Life Discourse. 
The chapter begins, as we saw last week, with the multiplication of bread to feed the many. It continued with the Lord walking in his body over the water to greet his storm-tossed church. And on some levels, what has the Lord demonstrated but that he can do whatever he desires with bread? And he can do whatever he desires with his body. And so it is that he says, my body is true bread. And I myself am the living bread that comes down from heaven. This is important, this insistence of the Lord saying, I am the bread, in terms of what we heard last week. Because note, when we considered the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, the Holy Spirit, through St. John, in that Gospel reading, very carefully noted it was not the apostles who gave the food out, but it was Jesus who blessed who broke, and who gave the bread. He is the one who feeds, and now he says, I who feed am also the bread that I give. Beautiful combination of realities this is. It relates to what we say about Jesus as a result of the holy days. Jesus is the lamb who is offered, but his very heart is the altar of sacrifice. And Jesus himself is the priest who makes the offering. And Jesus is also the God who receives it. Note how marvelous that is. He is the lamb who is sacrificed, the altar on which the sacrifice is made, he is the priest who offers the sacrifice and also the God who receives it. And now he says, I, who am the giver of bread, am myself the bread that I give. And in speaking this way, Jesus is not simply making a comparison of himself to Moses. He's going much beyond that. Moses pointed the people to the bread that God would give. And Jesus is saying, I am the giver of the bread, and I am the bread. Implicit in that is he is identifying himself with the God of Israel. I am the giver of the true bread. But I am the bread itself. And the true bread that comes down from heaven which is true food for the human race and for the human heart and, true for, and for the human spirit, is me. And that heart which does not feast on me, however full it fancies itself, is a heart that starves. That spirit which does not feed on me, is a spirit, however content it imagines itself to be, is a spirit that will always wander hungry. That life, which does not feed on me, on the true bread, 
however strong it may believe itself to be, is a life that will crumble under weakness because it has not the food by which it can be sustained. But the other implication is in order to be fed by, on, in order to feed on me, you must let me feed you. That's the other implication with the Lord describing himself in this way. If I am the bread and I am the giver of bread, then I must give myself to you. And you must receive from me what it is that I give you. Note again how beautifully that connects to the miraculous feeding of the multitude. How did the people receive? They received what Christ gave them and not some other food. That is difficult for the human heart, not just in our modern age, but you know, we love to customize our orders at restaurants. I really like this, but could you make these six changes for me according to my preference? We work that way. We like to negotiate. And yet the Lord is saying, I know what you need, and I am who you need. I am the true food, not that food that you fancy you need, not that food that you fancy you desire. Leave that go, and you come to me. I will feed you. And note the exclusivity of this, because he's also saying there is no other source. There are not many breads of life and I just happen to be the flavor of the month. I am the bread of life. There is no other. And again, as he speaks this way, the Lord centers eternal life on a relationship with him as because he is the source. Those whom the Father has given me, I receive. And so note, Jesus is not simply the giver, he says. He is the one who likewise receives. And what does he receive? All that the Father has decided to give him. He receives completely from the Father, and his reception of, from the Father includes you. I receive you because the Father has given you to me. Which also means then, he's given you to me, he has given me to you. And if you would receive from God, you must receive me. How absolutely beautiful. But because we like to control the outcome and we like to dictate the terms, this becomes problematic for the human heart. And so we'll see as we move forward, this direct statement of Jesus, however beautiful it is, is difficult and it's challenging and will be itself an occasion of conflict and rejection. But in the end, in the end, the Lord is emphasizing, if you would truly feed on unto eternal life, 
there is but one source. And he stands before you and instructs you now. I am the giver of that bread because I am the bread. And I give you not as the world gives or as Moses gave, a bread that wasn't himself, a bread that wasn't his to give. The manna that came down from heaven was not bread that Moses gave. It wasn't Moses' bread. It came from the Lord. And the true bread, the true bread that comes down from heaven, the Lord says, oh, it's not the manna. It is me. Because as scripture so beautifully says, man does not live on bread alone, but on those words that issue forth from the mouth of God. And he is that very word made flesh. The word upon which man must live. And so in just a couple minutes, we get to come forward. And he who is the priest and the altar and the lamb of sacrifice, he who is the one who is pleased to receive the offering, will be on this altar as the giver of bread and the bread that is given. How absolutely beautiful. And there can be that tendency, that temptation in the human heart, where we would never do it openly or visibly or directly. But to come forward and with a certain attitude of spirit that as we see the consecrated host lifted and we hear the words, the body of Christ, to think, not that one, Father, give me a different one. In other words, there's always that part of us that likes to decide what we receive, when we receive, how we receive it. When the simple task is, just receive. But with these reflections in mind, it, it is a good moment to just be a little more attentive as we come forward to the quality of our bearing, to the quality of how we stretch out our hands, to the physical manner of our receiving. Because while that is not the most important thing by any stretch of the imagination, it's not an unimportant thing. And the physical gestures, the posture, the pacing that we have are at the service of the heart making the correct gesture as well, of focusing itself that it might fully receive from the hand of the Lord who is bread, his very life. Because Jesus is not simply the giver of bread. He is the, giver, he is the bread that is given. Amen.